majority of people go into law school thinking they want to do one thing and end up doing another. Right. And it was in my last year of law school where I realized I certainly do not want to be a corporate lawyer. So I realized, yeah, I wanted to be in court. But the little wrinkle in the plan, the bump in the road, I don't know if you know, I published a book called Law Girls Bump in the Road. No. It's based on a true life story about this girl who found out that she was pregnant in her last semester of her last year of law school. I was that girl who was always like, who gets pregnant by accident? How does that even happen? And here I am. <laughs> so I came home from the hospital to a voice message on my home answering machine, right. an offer for an interview for articling at oh. a personal injury firm. And I was like, this is the best gift ever. I've had this child, I can do this. Yeah. So I called them back right away. I said I would come in for an interview, like I could come the next week. And they, they said, but didn't you just have a baby? Why don't we give it a couple of weeks? And I'm like, okay. But my first day I walk in and I'm like, why are there people in wheelchairs in the lobby? Yeah. And then I realized They'd been in an accident, both of them, his brother and sister were paraplegic okay. from a motor vehicle accident wow. and their father had been the driver. Oh my God. It was just a devastating, sad story. But in that moment, I realized what personal injury was. Right. And so while I was so proud to help the families that we helped, mm -hmm. I also had this realization that I was actually a true ambulance chaser. And how was my family gonna react? Founded in 2017, StartWell is Toronto's independent hub for innovators to collaborate. Our podcasts relate perspectives from the world's most diverse urban population to reflect unique insights into global business, media, and culture. First off, welcome to the studio. Thank you. We jumped into it. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to paint your picture of your career, okay? Okay. So, law school. You like what was what was your kind of background to becoming a lawyer? Did you did you want to be a lawyer or was this just like a safe job that you kind of thought this is a career track? I was 12 years old. I told my parents I wanted to be a lawyer because I'd watched a movie and I, I loved what I saw in the courtroom. And I thought to myself, I can do that. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. And my dad said to me, lawyers are a dime a dozen. Why would you want to be a lawyer? I was around yeah, 12 years old, so it was oh. the early 90s. And my mother said to me, interestingly enough, she was a legal secretary. Oh, That's what her training is in from Nairobi, Kenya. Wow. And when she came to Canada, her first job was as a legal secretary. And she saw what lawyers did, which was a lot of reading. And she said to me, do you really think you want to spend the rest of your life reading and researching? And fast forward, neither of them were wrong. <laughs> Lawyers are a dime a dozen and law does require a lot of reading and researching. So back then though, they tried to put the idea out of my mind, my yeah. mom more than my dad. I think that my mom thought I wasn't capable because she knew what I was doing mm. in my early teenage years, which was up to no good whenever I could. <laughs> and she just, what I city thought, did you grow up I was in Toronto, but then okay. we lived uh, in BC. Yeah from uh, ages, when I was ages three to three to nine, so six years. Um, so we were, I was born in Toronto, moved to Victoria, mm -hmm. moved back to Toronto. But in Victoria, I told everybody that I was from Toronto at age like five, six, <laughs> the seven. Big smoke, I the center of the Toronto. universe. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was not gonna be from Victoria. Right. <laughs> not that it's not a beautiful place, uh, but 
yeah, so they were trying to steer me. My mom more so was trying to steer me into what do you think? Which direction? Mm. Pre-med, obviously. Really? Yes. She's like, you need to go to medical school and you need to go to Harvard. Oh I'm like, God. okay, but I don't want to do either of these things. Yeah. And then I did a program at Johns Hopkins University Okay. in pre-med. And it was right before I started university. And I decided I am... I was correct. I don't want to do medical school. I don't want to do science. Mm. I am not studying biological macromolecules for another second of my life or chemistry or biology or physics. While they are fascinating as topics, I don't want to study this for yep. years of my life or even another minute, which is what I did at Johns Hopkins. And so I loved that program. I made amazing friends and appreciate so much that I did that program before I made a huge mistake. And so I started in September. Uh, at university and I studied economics, which I always loved at school. Yeah. And then while I was in university, I learned about finance because I didn't know that topic. Remember, this is before the internet. Right. We didn't know all these things. You knew what and you were told. it's also not something your parents teach you. It's not no. like, right? No. Financial think, literacy in general is I not something. I think more so now because now they yeah. have courses and we talk to our kids a little bit more. I never filed my taxes, man, until I was... Uh, until I was, how old was I? Are you I? sure you want to admit this? Yes. Yeah, out sure. loud. Oh, I've dealt, I've dealt with the CRA <laughs> oh, okay. on this. Don't okay, worry. just making sure. <laughs> I never knew that I had to file. Isn't that crazy? I yeah. never knew because I never thought that I earned money. So I was like, why do I need to file taxes? Yes, people don't realize that even if you don't make money, you're supposed to file a tax return as an adult in Canada. So I was like 26? No, or later, 29. And I think the CRA was like, you haven't filed for 10 years. You owe us this much. We guesstimated that you owe us like three hundred thousand dollars or something and i was like and i went through that and i had to had to go through that and, and it, that for me was the big catalyst a late in life that like oh wow okay and mm -hmm. i was already an entrepreneur but i was like wait what am i assuming that i can ignore you know and i had yeah. to fix that but anyway back to your story so, so i yeah so i did I, I did a double major in economics and finance and my goal my dream was to be on wall street wow and movies again no, actually, okay. probably. You know what? Probably. Now that you're, I'm like, maybe I've watched Wall Street. Probably. I don't know. I guess so. Well, I'm I mean, going to be Gordon Gecko. I, I could do it. Probably not a good thing. <laughs> if I could go back so, to the 80s and be a stockbroker. Well, th I, I mean, would. that was, it was probably, I mean, where else would I have gotten it? I don't know. But I just loved the excitement of it. Yeah. And it's, it was very in line with my personality. And I thought that's what I wanted. I, I believe I did want it. But the problem is, I graduated. A semester early, okay. I was in the U.S. for university, and so I graduated in December 2001. What had happened in September? 9-11. Mm, That's correct. And the boom and bust right before that. Yeah. The, the startup bubble anyway. So lots of Yeah, lots there was a lot. And, and so I had all these wonderful uh, interviews lined up. Interestingly enough, my accounting professor was trying to get me to go to Enron because he, he had an in with them, and he was always allowed to recommend a couple. <laughs> Enron. And good thing that didn't happen because I was like, I don't really want to go to Houston. That was my that was my thinking of why I didn't want to go to Enron. And it was all set. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't want to go to Houston. Wow. I wanted to go to New York. Yeah. And I had interviews lined up with Arthur Anderson, okay. J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, my God. And I was actually in the second round at one of those companies. And then I was told, we've inquired and we're not going to be able to secure your visa mm. because you are Canadian. And that is foreign 
<laughs> like, right. I'm foreign. <laughs> Too difficult. We don't want yeah, to figure we it can't, out. Yeah, we can't. I think there was a freeze for a little while because of September 11th. There was. I got so, through that. Yeah. Um, it was tough. And, you know, I was just graduating. There's so many other people. Why would they deal with me, even right. if they could try to figure it out? So I was already toying with the idea of further education because that summer and the prior summers, I'd been working at a company called Pegasus Solutions in their treasury department. I was blown away with what I learned and loved the people mm. I worked with and enjoyed being in the in the office with all these people and doing all these things with currency exchange. And I just realized, though, I looked around and I'm like, OK, but this is fantastic in my early 20s, late teens. But do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my like career? Stuck in some back office. Yeah, because yeah. everyone around me was significantly older than me and doing the same thing as me. Right. So I realized that in order for me to do more, I need more education. Yeah. And so I was like going back to the law school idea. Huh. And then with the interview process, it solidified my thinking. And so I signed up for the LSAT and went in, did the LSAT, and here we are. I went to law school, moved back to Canada. Yeah. Went to Queen's Law. Okay. And loved it. I love that school. It really? It was perfect for me. Yes. Uh, great people. Very whole, social. And the focus on the university, not necessarily like the city, right? That's right. Yeah. And and I think that was important for me because I, I felt concerned that if I was in Toronto, I may not focus on school. Yeah. Whereas in Kingston, you have nothing else to focus on except school. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're certainly not focusing on Kingston. <laughs> so I made amazing friends. And to this day, I'm still in touch with them. And even the people I wasn't so close to, we had such a collegial group mm. and became very close because, again, there was nothing else to be close too, um, that I would not hesitate to contact any of them, even if I hadn't seen them in years, yeah. if I needed anything or I just wanted to chat, I wouldn't hesitate to contact them. And I, I'm pretty sure that they would be receptive to that. Uh, so I was blessed to go there. And then, um, yeah, I started my legal career. And uh, the, okay, I got to ask this, like, it's, it's, a, it's something I always ask lawyers and, and everyone has a weird answer. Um, at what point mm -hmm. as you're starting kind of your legal education, do you decide on what your specialty would be, if anything, you know, are you going to be corporate? Are you going to be criminal? Are you going to be, sorry to say it, but an ambulance chaser? Like you mean what I do? <laughs> <laughs> so the majority of people go into law school thinking they want to do one thing and end up doing another. Right. Because you can't really appreciate what these areas of practice do until you're doing it. Mm. I thought, because of my background in business growing up in my family's business, as well as my educational background in economics and finance, that I would definitely be either a corporate lawyer or a tax lawyer or securities, mm -hmm. something in that vein. Because of, yeah, finance law, yeah. It all seemed to line up to me. Mm. And it was in my last year of law school where I realized I certainly do not want to be a corporate lawyer because you are doing, you're the middleman for two sides. Yeah. You don't get to make any decisions. In fact, even if what decision you think should be made should be made, it is not up to you. No. It is it is up to your client who has significantly more power than you. You're just the lawyer. You're just doing the work for them. You're just pushing yeah. paper. And I'm like, I can't just push paper for these people. They need to listen to me. Uh, so I recognize that that's, that wasn't going to work. Yeah. I probably would have no clients because I would tell them what to do, which is not the way it's supposed to be. They're supposed to tell me what to do. Uh, and I loved my moot class now i didn't even know what a moot was yeah do you this know what is, it is 
Well, I'm putting I, you on the spot. Yeah, isn't a moot like basically you get some sort of thesis to argue? It's like a, a debate. Yeah, I, you're it, arguing a motion. It it's like being in court. It's like a fake fake court court case. Right. Yeah, right. so you're like pretending. But you have no time to research and stuff, do you? You do. Oh, you okay. Do. I thought it was all spontaneous. No. So there are competitive moots and there's compulsory moot. And we had a compulsory one at Queen's. And I never did the competitive ones because I didn't even know what the word meant. And I'm like, I don't know what a moot is. It sounds boring. Is it pronounced outside of Canada as a mout? I don't know, but I'd <laughs> you know, be embarrassed like, to I've say that. I've always wondered that. I was like, is it M-O-O-T? Because, you know, it sounds very Canadian, right? Like a moose and a hoose. Oh. And a moot. Well... Because I was born and raised in Canada, I never thought of yeah, that. Yeah. No, but, that was just, that's a, but again, this is coming from a girl who didn't even know what a moot was and never heard of it until law school. And everyone seemed to know what it was. And in the first week of law school, everyone's trying out for the competitive moot. And I'm like, what the hell is a moot? Yeah. Like, what is this? And then you were excited to find out about it. Well, I found like, out about it. it three years later when it was compulsory. Oh. It was a mandatory class to graduate. I'm like, I guess I have to do this moot thing. And so we were presented with a case and yeah. we had to represent one side. There's plaintiff and defendant. And so uh, me and my partner had represented one side and I recognized not only was I good at it, yeah. but I loved it. Nice. It's thinking on your feet, um, just thinking quick. Doing the research, I didn't mind because it was so exciting to argue. Whereas all the research in all my other classes, I'm like, oh my God, please, not another research paper. Oh God, please, no. Yeah, yeah. You know, even when I got into practice, as soon as I had had any sort of status and was able to use the articling student or junior lawyer I did to do the research because that is just one thing I've hated always. It's just really boring to go through all these cases. Yeah. I'm like, just give me the Coles Notes version, please. Like, what do I need to know here? Um, so, and, and there's some people out there that actually do enjoy the research sure. aspect. Yeah, yeah, there's different strokes. Like some people like the front end of the business and some people like the back end. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was getting out there and there's some people who hate that. They just don't want to, they would rather sit at the desk and do the research. Yeah. Uh, so we need people that enjoy different things. So it's good that there are those people. Uh, so I realized, yeah, I wanted to be in court. And so for articling, I applied to every position that involved litigation. Okay. And the problem, or maybe not the problem, but the little wrinkle in the plan, the bump in the road. Mm. I don't know if you know, I published a book called Law Girls Bump in the Road. No, I didn't know this. So... <laughs> It's based on a true life story about this girl who found out that she was pregnant in her last semester of her last year of law school. Oh. Yes. And is that, do you know this girl? Like when you look in the mirror, do you see her? I, I seem to see like a little glimmer of her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I see the 17 year old son who's graduating school. It just so happens that that's uh, how long I've been out of law school. Wow. Yes. And um, I had my son yeah. and I had to halt all my uh, interviews for articling positions. So I went through the whole routine of doing the applications and setting up interviews. And all of a sudden in February, I find out that I'm pregnant. Mm. And I was that girl who was always like, who gets pregnant by accident? How does that even happen? And here I am. <laughs> yes, so here I was with this child and uh, oh, wow. I, I had to cancel everything, not because I didn't want to article, I did, but I didn't know what it would be like to go through pregnancy, how long I would need off, what the yeah. labor would be like. This was my first kid, like I had no idea what to you expect. You were young, man. I was very young and very yeah. scared and this was not part of the plan. I was planning to follow the traditional route of getting my articling job, being called back as an associate, getting to be partner, having that corner office, right. and then having a child. Yeah, family when you're 40, you know? Yeah, like, well, yeah. hopefully not that long, but <laughs> uh, you know, that was the plan. And this was a big bump in the road. 
And um, I, yeah, I stopped everything. I could keep going. Should I tell you what happened? Or should I make you read my book? (laughs) No, I mean, come on. No cliffhangers. uh, I I will read the book regardless. September 14th, I have my son. I was at home for a couple of weeks. So after that Labor Day weekend, all my friends had started their articling positions. And here I am, very large, very uncomfortable and very hot because it was just just brutal with the heat that summer. So I had my last exam uh, at the end of August and it was wills and estates. And I remember waking up that morning and back. Uh, back then, that morning, I recall not having slept because you have to pee a lot at the end of your pregnancy. Like you're getting up to go to the bathroom and I'm like, I am so tired. I am so hot and sweaty. I like it's it's the end of summer. I'm so fat and pregnant. Everyone's going to stare at me right. because I'm the pregnant girl with yeah. all these people that are about to be lawyers and you're not supposed to do that, you know, and this maybe a TV show, man, it was really it was it was brutal. And I'm lying there and I'm like, should I go to this exam? Should I not? Well, if I don't, then I can just reschedule it but I don't even know how to reschedule it when would I reschedule it for will it be worse with a child like how am I going to study yeah like, um, my last chance I gotta make this happen yeah and it was only pass fail I just oh, okay. had to pass yeah and so I'm like okay I got up I found whatever clothes I could put on <laughs> that would fit me and I remember, I also, not only do you peel up, but you're hungry, like every five yeah, minutes, yeah. but nothing will fit in you. Right. So it's like, you're just constantly it's hungry uncomfortable. and uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, I'm taking granola bar because I can't sit through like a three hour exam without eating. And if they tell me in my mind, I'm like preparing myself for my, my debate with the right. person watching over us. I, I was thinking if they get upset at me for eating a granola bar during this exam, I'm just going to say, look at me, look at me. <laughs> you had it all. You had the argument yes. all prepared. <laughs> so I take my granola bars, I take my pens and I, I just, you know, waddle to this Metro Convention Center class. What well, was a room they set up as a class with all these desks. Um, and, and I'm sure everyone was staring at me, but at the same time, I think it was worse for me, the perception that everyone's staring at me. Right. I think they were more concerned about passing their exam. Yeah. 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 They didn't even see you. Like, you well, were I'm pretty sure they saw me. Like, it was hard to miss me at that point, like, but yeah, yeah, maybe they saw me for a second and be like, oh, she's pregnant and then go back to their thinking. But in my mind, I'm like, everyone's staring at me. This is very uncomfortable. Um, and so I, I did that exam. Yeah. And I went home immediately. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to get out of there. Um, And I, yeah, I passed. But I passed by, I think it was just a few grades. So now they don't tell you what you passed by. Back then they did. And I used to remember exactly how many marks I passed by. But I recall it being just a few. But I'm just just like, whew, did it. I passed my last exam. Now I just had to article. Um, I'm so glad I did that last exam as just as uncomfortable as it was, uh, two weeks later, everyone's articling, I am not, um, but I had this child and it was a very easy labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was brutal because he kept waking up every like few hours. He was colicky. I didn't even know what colicky was. I still oh. am not sure I really understand what colic is, but he was colicky. Right. And uh, it was <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I came home from the hospital, because we didn't all have cell phones back then. No, we did not. I had one, but I don't think Some I even had it. Some people had it, but then you, the other people didn't. So then you, you're like, well, how do I reach anyone? Exactly. I'm reachable, but. So I came home from the hospital yeah. to a voice message on my home answering machine. Right. On a little cassette that fit inside of it. Thank God it wasn't that bad, but it was like something old yeah. school. And um, 
it was a inter, uh, an interview, an offer for an interview for articling at oh. a personal injury firm. Okay. And I was like, this is the best gift ever. I've had this child. I, I can do this. Yeah. So I called them back right away. And I arranged the interview and then they knew that I'd been pregnant. Someone had told them that, you know, I didn't care so much about pay. I just needed to article. Okay. And uh, they were looking for like anyone. Anyone. Yes. We'll take the pregnant girl. We'll take the pregnant girl. She might be okay, but you know. She went to Queens. They knew uh, that. So yeah, there was on paper, something. It's good. It's yeah. okay. So, uh,. <laughs> So I said I would come in for an interview, like I could come the next week. And they, they said, but didn't you just have a baby? Why don't we give it a couple of weeks? And I'm like, okay. So um, I had my interview a couple of weeks later and we decided I would start articling a couple of weeks after that. Okay. And I, I was so excited that I got the job. And right. what happened was it was this individual, he was in his 60s who had started, he was very successful. A very successful litigator. His name was Jack Fireman. Okay. And he was known, he's not so known anymore because he's passed away, but uh, he was well known in the in the industry as being a top litigator. And uh, he had just started his firm. And I now know how difficult it must have been in his 60s because he could not fail. Mm. He was already at the top of his game and he should have been retiring. But for whatever reason, the man decides to start his own firm yeah, to like... prove uh, something to himself, I guess. I don't know, or to others, who knows. Uh, but he needed help. And because the startup cost of a firm is so high, he was very Just happy. Just because of labor primarily, right? Labor and in personal injury, there's disbursements. We front the cost of the litigation. Oh, right. So what, the court filing fees, the process servers, the med legal reports, those are in the thousands. Mm. And the way he would run files, it was like 20, 30, 40,000 a file. Wow. Um, so each client had the necessity to have that big spend. And so the labor, yeah, the labor was there, but you had all these other costs too. So it was a balancing act. So when he heard of me, this is like, it was a win-win. Mm -hmm. And um, I was happy to start with him. But my first day I walk in and I'm like, why are, why are there, he goes, we have a client meeting. And I'm like, why are there people in wheelchairs in the, in the lobby? Yeah. And then I realized they'd been in an accident and they were, both of them, uh, his brother, sister, were paraplegic okay. from a motor vehicle accident. Wow. And their father had been the driver. Oh, my God. And it was just a devastating, sad story. But in that moment, I realized what personal injury was. Right. And so while I was so proud to help the families that we helped, mm -hmm. I also had this realization that I was actually a true ambulance chaser. And how was my family going to react? And while people would say to me now, how did you not know what personal injury really was? I I didn't have the internet back then. We didn't yeah. have all the research you can do at the tips of your fingers. Right. Like coming here today, you know, well, you just even, Google you. There's no Google. I would assume even in school, so as you're training to be a lawyer, that kind of like lived in reality of being a lawyer doesn't get brought back to the school. So you're, you probably didn't have like active lawyers coming back to classes to give talks about what it's like like this. We did occasionally, but yeah. not as much as now. And personal injury and insurance law were not courses until recently. Right. Also, all the billboards you see around town and the bus ads and the TV ads, didn't they exist. didn't exist because yeah. the law society was very strict about advertising rules. They right. relaxed those rules um, in the early 2000s. And people didn't take advantage of it mm -hmm. until the mid-2000s. And I graduated law school in 2005. So 
there was, you know, it was just starting all this, all the advertising you see now. Side note, have you ever heard of an accident that might have been caused by the back of the bus ad? <laughs> Someone getting distracted oh, and driving irony. into the bus? The irony. Uh, no, but I do know the lawyers that advertise on the back of the bus very well, and I should ask them. Have you right. ever been, have you hey, ever been put on notice? Hey, Diamond and Diamond. Oh, this is one woman. <laughs> Hi, Diamond. Oh, wait, Diamond. Diamond. Um, so okay, so here you are. You're an ambulance chaser. You're you're dealing with the reality of, of what that meant, and uh, you have a child, but you gotta you gotta make it work. This is your career. This yes. is what you're doing. That's correct. And then, how long did it take you to become Jasmine Daya and Company? Well, despite not starting on the traditional route of mm-hmm. articling without child. I then started following a very traditional route. Okay. So yes, I had my child, but I got called to the bar with my friends. I think a lot of them were very surprised to see me there right. because, and some of them were not so happy for me because they were like, wait, it's not fair that she got to have a kid and get called to the bar oh with us. God. That's a little weird. Yes, lawyers are very competitive. They really are, yeah. Uh, so I get called to the bar. I was called back to the same firm. I was an associate there. I stayed as a partner there. Then I became named partner, had my name on the wall, which is a dream come true for most lawyers. Um, And then I became managing partner. And then when my superior was phasing out, and he should have probably phased out sooner than he did, but he kind of already had phased out, but he was closing the firm. Yeah. I started my own firm. And it was not my intention. Most lawyers, their goal in life is to is to hang a shingle, as they say, right. you know, start their own law firm. For me, that was never a desire. I had a really cushy job in the sense that, yeah, I was busting my ass and doing everything I needed to do to make money and to ensure the success of my little practice within the firm. Yep. Uh, but I had no liability. It was all on someone else. Right. And so I was very content tend to continue that. Um, but I realized I had to grow up mm-hmm. because I did meet with several people and did have job offers or job opportunities presented to me, whether it was be an associate or partner at other personal injury firms. Okay. But I realized going into each firm that each firm had its own culture. Mm. And because I'd been at the same firm for so long, I didn't realize that also we had a culture and it was not a healthy one, by the way, because it was okay. create it was very old school in the sense that um, my superior sort of pitted us one against the other to make sure that we're always constantly trying to one up each other and do better right. instead of a collegial collaborative environment, which is the more healthy way and perhaps sure. a better way in some respects. Yeah. Um, so I decided I can't really fit the mold of these firms. I don't think I can see myself doing some of these things. For example, one firm every Friday morning would get together and discuss case law, the new laws that had just been uh, released, Mm -hmm. so we could all be on the same wavelength and be up to speed and share anything we wanted to share about and discuss any questions we had about cases we had so we could all have what they called, quote, a powwow. I'm like, how do I get out of the powwow? (laughs) Like Thursday night, I go out with my friends. I am not making it into that morning meeting on Friday. Yeah. I, 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 while I would come to work, I wouldn't want to be discussing the law and my condition on Friday morning. (laughs) So I was already having these thoughts. I'm like, if I'm having these thoughts about this firm, how can I be at it? And it's not a bad thing. What they did was great. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, Because you've been outside of that. You've been kind of doing your own thing. And and in that competition, probably, you know, that you grew up in kind of like bred in you that necessity to be on top of what you need to know and reason it out already. 
So you felt like that was just a waste of time anyway. To yes, like, for me yeah. it was. It was. But each firm had different things um, that they did that I was like, I just can't do this. Yeah. Like even checking in, um, keeping a docket and explaining where you are at all times. I hadn't done that. I'd never right, done that. Right, right. I worked more hours than anyone. I still work more hours than anyone. Yeah. Pretty sure. Um, and I'm proud of that. But I don't have anyone checking in on me. I right. just know what needs to get done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that it gets done. And mm. my boss was like, as long as you're making money, I don't care. Yeah. Um, so to have that kind of scrutiny, I was like, I don't think I can actually check in with someone like that's not going to work for me. Um, not that I have anything to hide, but I like squeeze in, you know, my kids school play or parent teacher or having my meetings with banks or like I was buying real estate on the side even back then. Mm. And so I would meet my brokers and real estate agents like on the way back from court, I would stop to go look at a property and no one cared back then. Is part of this also this kind of like the problematic kind of aspect of, of law as a business, which is this billable hour? Like the billable hour is kind of an inefficient means of you know. Well, in personal injury, we yeah. don't work on billable hour. In uh, personal okay. injury, we're on contingency fee. And that's why it mattered less where I was and what I was doing as long as I was making money. Right. Because we take a percentage of the settlement. Right. So, so it, doesn't it doesn't matter, matter how you get there no. as long as you win. No. Yeah. It, whether it's 10 hours or it's 10 years, we're making the same percentage yeah. of whatever the settlement is. So that's why my boss probably didn't care because he knew. But I mean, the majority of cases require a lot of work. And in fact, if you look at how much time we spend on some of these cases, if you looked at it by the hours spent, mm. oftentimes it's more than we are making by way of contingency sure. fee. Sure. And the individuals that are injured could never afford to pay us on an hourly rate. Right. Um, so I think it's beneficial, that model is beneficial. Um, but coming back to me personally, I don't need people checking out on me. So. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, Jasmine, you got to grow up, time to grow up, time to uh, sink in some money into your own firm, Yep. have some liability attached to it. And here we are. I started my firm in uh, 2017. 2017. Oh, that was the same time I started this company, Startwell. Yeah. Interesting times in Toronto, right? And the economy was picking up and things were busy. Things were good. It was going crazy. Things in were really good yeah. until uh, November 2019, I decided because of my entrepreneurial side and the real estate that I alluded to, I'm like, why am I paying rent for my office? Oh. So I buy an office building in Yorkville. Ah, so you own that building. Yes, sir, I do, and I'm very proud of that building. I love it. However, listen to the date, November 2019. Fast forward, March 2020. I'm sitting in my office with nobody in it and the lights off, and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? Hey, but at least as a a kind of line (laughs) item, you know, in your expenses, so long as the firm had work. Yeah, but the courts closed for six months. Ah, oh, yes. So you didn't have the work. No, we did not have the work. The, we Also, who's getting injured on a stay-at-home order? <laughs> it's like there were no injuries for There were years. no injuries. This was great for society, <laughs> but I'm a personal injury lawyer that owns a building with the courts closed and no injured people. So that's when you started saying... I got to do something else. Correct. Okay, and, and and what did that what what did that kind of mental process involve <laughs> for you? I'm laughing because back then all I could do was cry, but <laughs> yeah. it was uh you know, I was sitting there. First of all, I had to lay off my staff for a period of time, which all jokes aside, like that was brutal. Yeah, it was tough. It's tough. It it's was brutal. Tough. And uh, you know, interestingly enough, they took it really well because they didn't want to work. I didn't realize, but they were 
mentally not able to work. Not all of them, but some of them. They were very happy for the time off because of the uncertainty of the mm-hmm, world. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was like, please just open a bottle of anything. I just need to like drink this before I do what I have to do yeah. as a boss yeah. and tell these people I'm sorry to kill your livelihood. Yeah, it's a weird thing when you're kind of like laying someone off for whatever the reason and they're like, yeah, cool. And you're like, I just went through so much pain. I, know. I didn't oh, sleep for a week about anguish, this. Yeah. You know, and I even went home and it weighed on me and yeah. I I remember that um, my husband at the time, <laughs> I have to add that in, um, he he asked me how things went. I said, just have just have a bottle of red open when I get home, yeah. please, because I, I can't even talk about it. Right. Because it was one after the other, you know, and I thought it was important to not. How many how many <sighs> staff did you have at the time? Like it, going into the Yeah. Um, it was between 17 and 20. Okay. That's a lot of people to figure out. Yeah. Plus we had suppliers um, and contract independent contractors and we had students and it was just a lot well also because then the question of course with that uncertainty at the time is like well is this temporary and even coming out of it how do i rebuild this do i want to rebuild this what does that look like Can i, hire well, these I wasn't back? thinking about how would i or would i my thinking was okay now I'm going to clean up all this stuff on my desk and settle out as many files as I can that have just been sitting here and need my attention and time while the courts are closed. And while I can't get pretrials and trials and mediations and my discoveries were canceled, I do have files that I could work on. Mm. So I did all that. I even, you know, organized all the papers for taxes. And then I organized (laughs) my house. Yeah, I organized my house. I went through all the baby clothes that had been sitting there for years and was like, okay, we we can discard. Like, I'm like, I finally had, and I had the silver lining for me was time with my kids, which I would have never had because I'd been so busy building. Right. And while I saw them every day, I always had dinner with them. It was important to me as a family. Mm -hmm. I was out again. And they just, you know, I blinked and they were already these ages. And so I had a lot of time with them and we, we did things together and we had like pool tournaments and played blackjack. And I realized that my kids are spotting me money for blackjack. They're better than me. I've trained them very well. Mm. Um, Even the pool tournaments, I'm like, oh my God, when did I start sucking? Like I grew up with a pool table. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they're just really good. I don't know. So we had a great time, but then I'm like, okay, I really need to occupy my mind because while this has been great, Um, I just can't sit here sipping on wine and hanging out with my kids and wasting away my life. Like I life becomes a, becomes a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, I felt like worthless. Like, I'm like, I need to do something for myself now. Um, so the novelty wore off and I'm like, okay, let's figure out what we're going to do. And I thought that the real estate market would crash. Like it was very on top of the news Mm -hmm. more than I'd ever been from the moment that pandemic hit. And I was watching the trends, the real estate, the markets, the politics, the everything. And I was like, the market's gonna crash, the market's gonna crash. I'm gonna buy in when the market crashes. And the market didn't crash, the real estate market went up. It's crazy. But what was crashing were all the businesses. They could not sustain themselves, how could they? They were closed, but they're still fixed expenses. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. So the government gives you all these subsidies, but guess what? That doesn't cover everything. There is an interesting point to to interject here, of course. Uh, That's so interesting for me as an observation, right? Is that like publicly traded companies kind of kept shuffling things around in their their books for a couple of years. Mm. Uh, And so everyone, you know, that was invested in the the public markets was kind of like, you know, who had like, let's call it a conventional job that didn't, that wasn't threatened by the pandemic. Yeah. They were at home sitting, sitting pretty kind of earning salaries, kind of feeling like, 
oh, our investments don't seem to be too threatened. And when there was that dip, I forget when there was that dip, it got recovered within a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. it felt like. And so they're like, you know, I guess I guess business is okay. And you're right. Like to that note, I have a lot of professional friends that um, don't understand when I try and express. They're like, oh, yeah, the government just saved your asses, right? And I'm like, well, kind of not really. I had a lot of expenses to carry because there wasn't some sort of like 100% keep, keep your business open or put it on pause. No. We'll subsidize your lifestyle kind of money. Yeah, you um, still got a mortgage to pay. But all of these like actual businesses, you know, uh, tanked, of course, because there's no revenue. Um, White yet, collar was fine to some degree because they're sitting at home still doing the same work. They're just doing it at home. The they're still continuing. A lot of publicly traded companies, though, their revenues did tank. But it wasn't anything that was as immediate because they had access to debt. They might have gone public in the last five, no, 10 years, you, had you're capital. Correct. But you know what? And that's why I'm very concerned about where we go from now. Because, from now, yeah. because you, so you have all this government spending. And I'm like, okay, this is economics 101. Okay. It, you're, and I still remember when, <laughs> I don't want to name names here, but our yeah. politicians, let's just say, sure. said that they wanted to use the low interest rates to our advantage and borrow money and give it to the people. And yeah. so they gave all these subsidi- subsidies out. I'm like, what do you think will happen when you have huge government spending? You're going to have inflation. And what happens when you have inflation? The only way to rein it in is to raise interest rates. And that's where we are right now. What happens when you raise interest rates? Well, first of all, the inflation has been passed on to consumers. Mm-hmm. So they're forced to spend more on everything and they can't afford it because their wages haven't gone up enough. And then you have the interest rates. And what happens with the interest rates? Well, all these people that have over leveraged themselves with the low interest rate time period, including myself. That's what you do. What are you going to do? How are you going to afford your mortgage? My building, this Yorkville building, it came up for renewal this past November. Mm. And my rate went up like a few percentage points. And that's a few thousand dollars extra per month. A few thousand dollars. Yeah, we've gone through that ourselves in a personal note. Um, But then also, this this is the big threat, right? Is that like in the commercial real estate world, you know, this is what everyone is freaked out about in the States. Canada, because the Riots own everything. Everyone thinks the Riots are gods and they'll exist forever. But we've seen it with like Brookfield handing back leases yeah. in California. A number of, of big companies have been kind of defaulting or not renewing leases. Well, there's um, going to be a continued trend of that. No one wants to talk about it, but we've got a few issues at play here in the sense that, so we have all these SIBA loans that have to be repaid. Those are the personal, individual. Those are the businesses oh, the business that got, loans, yes, yes. you know, the, I think the first round was 40000 and you it have to like pay back th- twenty. It was like thirty, and then it doubled to yeah. sixty or something. Yeah, um, or whatever yeah. it was. But you have to pay back a certain amount, and then you, yeah. you get to keep a certain amount. Anyway, the point is that they were supposed to be repaid last December, and then they pushed it to it's this extended. coming December. And... They're going to have to extend it again because nobody has the money, number one. They can't admit, number two, something else, which is a lot of the businesses that they lent to have folded. Yeah. So where's that money coming? And there's no personal guarantee. There's no personal guarantee on them. So what's going to happen? I mean, the government doesn't want to to admit it. I don't even know if they know how colossal this problem is. I personally think even if they wrote a clean slate for all the government subsidized funding that they did, like to all businesses, they said, you know what, we don't even want the money back. But they had a backup plan to reactivate the economy and 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 never in the first place stop 
economic activity figured out a way oh instead of paying every single commercial lease <laughs> no i mean well, like that's also a problem yeah it is a problem it is a problem but i think that again this is now getting into like politics right but from the outset i was very surprised as a business operator to see how in Canada, we never think about this until this crisis, right? But how the various levels of government in our country, from municipal to provincial to federal, interact. And the, the truth is they kind of don't, right? There's they like, do when they need to. Yeah. I mean, like... In, like you have the city asking the province right now for money because they're so short funds. Right. So they all ask for money from each other, right? And then there's this cross-provincial trade thing. There's like Alberta is feeling like they subsidize the whole world because <laughs> of oil and all that stuff. But... I mean, in terms of active communication and You're foresight. You're right, but this comes back to what I said earlier. Yeah. It all comes down to money and politics. Right, absolutely. And it's sad because it's at the mercy of the people that they're supposed to serve Yeah. that we have all these issues. And so, okay, let's get micro again. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Pandemic, and you're looking at opportunities yes. to figure out your path forward, and you're seeing uh, businesses that are closing. Yeah, so I started looking at buying businesses because I just needed to do something. I needed to consume my mind with a new project before I lost my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at all sorts of different businesses. I remember I even looked into this coin-operated laundromat. I'm like, oh, Yeah, I've often so wondered cheap. about those. Yeah, and what do I have to do? Like, I mean, how hard is it to just get the washing machines fixed and go pick up the coin? Like, how easy is that? business. It is, but then it isn't. I mean, you know, things, no business at the end of the day is Quick totally wins. easy, yeah. yeah. Um, but in any event, I was looking at that. I was looking at so many different things. And then Did you look at ATMs. I mean, it would have been a bad time for ATMs, <laughs> but that's another business like CoinOp Laundry. It's a yeah. really interesting little business. Yeah, I actually know the guy who installs them in my businesses, and uh, it's like kind of a side hustle for him. But I, he actually brings the physical machine in with right. a dolly, and I'm yeah, like, he's sweating. Of, yeah, it takes work. It takes work. Yeah. And the third party vendors that manage it all. Uh, eat up so much of the margin. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then I'm like harassing him. Like, there's no cash in the ATM. I have a big event tonight. You need to get over here. And he has to drop <laughs> everything to come fill the cash. <laughs> Weren't banks at some point using Uber to deliver money? Were they? I didn't hear that. Yeah. Anyway, that, okay. That, okay, that's we a digress. Brain fart. So, yeah. So I was looking at different businesses and then I was like, Pravda Vodka Bar is for sale. And, uh, I was instantly intrigued and excited about the prospect. And I had breakfast with my parents. Mm -hmm. I guess that was an illegal breakfast because we weren't supposed to be. Oh, you were supposed to be sitting at home by yourself. Was it, was it called social? Social distancing and uh, and all that, yeah. I can't remember the term of when you're. Anyway, so my father and I, while my mom is making eggs and um, perota and my spicy potatoes that I love. Um, my dad and I chat about business and real estate, and he loves talking about currency and mm. crypto. I'm not into crypto, I won't touch it. He thinks it's fascinating. Uh, but we talk about business, and I told, I told him a few things were on my radar. Mm -hmm. And then I said, and so, the last thing that I want to chat with you, dad, is Pravda, because I'm thinking about going to take a look. And he goes, Pravda? And he goes, the vodka bar? And I'm like, yeah. And this is shocking to me that my father even knows because yeah. my parents don't drink. Right. They don't go to anywhere nightlife-ish. Yeah. That's not their scene. And um, and I'm happy it's not. I wouldn't want them there. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I couldn't believe he knew it. And I, I go, how do you even know the place? He's like, I know the owner. i like, how do you know the owner? I don't even know yeah, the owner. That's so random. And he said that one of, there's two owners and one of them sits on the board of directors of my brother's company. 
Oh, small world. And I said, can I talk to him? Can you help me? And he's like, yes, I have his phone number and his email. I go, let's do an email intro. And so my dad's like, let's do one. So he pulls out his phone. And my father and I are very much alike. Like we right. just do things on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, still waiting for our proton eggs. And we're like, we're going to make some use of this time. So he pulls out his, his phone <laughs> and uh, he's let's starting. That's my company, honey. Yes. So he's like trying to email uh, one of the owners and I'm I'm like annoyed because my dad is you know um, he's he's very good with his phone yeah but I oh uh, yes I'm not into this one finger old yeah. man texting typing whatever should I say that it's bad but anyway I'm like dad give me the phone right now so and you know actually my kids are doing this to me now they think I'm slow not at typing but at the social media stuff yeah because they just know it so much faster and it's like I aggravate them and I'm like how dare you touch my phone but now I realize how my parents must feel yeah. so. I grab the phone. I do my own email intro from his email yeah. to the owner saying, my daughter is very interested of blah, blah, blah. Right. And uh, we set it up right then and there. Nice. And so that week, so that was a weekend I'd gone for breakfast. Yeah. And that week I went and saw Pravda. And I remember sneaking pictures of this place and sending it to my friends covertly. I'm like, oh, I'm at a bar because we were in heavy lockdown. Right. It was 2020. Yeah. It was 2020. We're in heavy lockdown. You are not supposed to be anywhere. Yeah, and for our listeners that are kind of like um, not in Ontario, not mm -hmm. in Toronto, not in Canada even, um, you know, it was crazy because the aesthetics of lockdown for us wasn't like we had like the National Guard in the streets, but... We kind of did. It felt like that where, you know, there were like lineups to get into the Shoppers Drug Mart. But there were people at points questioning and we were also... At one point, I still remember, again, I won't name names, but some of the politicians said, like, if you see people, yeah, report so, social, them, right? was it social mingling? Was it? I'm know, still so trying to remember stupid. those really. There was a lot of this short-sighted stupidity and they were kind of like creating this culture of fear. And then there were hotlines that got created. Yes, that's, that's what, what I'm you're saying. About, right? That's what I'm saying. So and if you like see people. Nar narc on your neighbors for having a barbecue. Yeah. You, you should know? not be celebrating with your family and friends. You should not be. Um, socializing social gatherings that's what it was i'm like it just came like, to me what other kind of gathering <laughs> is there gatherings. they're all social you know? <laughs> yeah and there were like signs oh. on the highway that literally said for two years almost stay at home keep everyone safe like i have photos of this because i hadn't gone on the highway for a long time i don't drive on the highway yeah. often unless i'm flying somewhere yeah and i remember going on the highway once and i was like laughing to myself cruising down this empty highway it felt like i was in like you know a zombie movie and this is what was in people's heads as they went down the highway they're, they're being told stay at home stay at home stay at home and, and everyone kind of like oh, we're still at home because you told us to stay at home yeah yeah <laughs> you know, it, was, like... it was interesting times but i remember sending these pictures and my friends were were messaging back saying where are you how are you in a bar because i did not just for everyone listening yeah the truth is i did not do anything um, other than seeing my parents, I didn't do anything that was against the law. Yeah, you're not like throwing a party or anything. No, yet. I didn't go to, there. Were, and there were, you know, there were underground parties and all sorts of stuff. And I didn't go to any, I was invited to a few. I didn't because um, I did not, quite frankly, I, as a lawyer, did not want to jeopardize anything with my law license. I did not have an issue and I did not report people. Right. Uh, because my belief was people should do what they want to do. But I didn't engage. I did, however, travel in social gather with others elsewhere <laughs> yeah, yeah outside of the country you mean, yeah, right? yeah 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 so okay so you you look at this bar you're excited by this opportunity mm -hmm. it's available you can make it work 
But of course, there's absolutely no like. Well, it was close. Yeah. It was close. So I walked in, saw the place, loved it. And I'm the type of person I do this with real estate too. If I want it, I will make an offer right there and then or that day. Yeah. And some people think that I'm being impulsive or don't you want to think about it? Don't you want to see it a second time? I'm like, no, I know. I also don't want to waste time. When I see an opportunity, I do not want to lose out to anyone. How did you figure out the whole like uh, the lease situation, like paying rent for, you know, a closed business? So I actually didn't take it over until September 2020. Okay. Um. So the deal was, I said to the owners, I said, look, I'm going to make you an offer, mm -hmm. but I need you to open it for me first. I can't buy a closed bar. I'd never owned a bar. Nice. Okay. My family had never owned a bar. I'd never owned a bar. While we had owned restaurants and hotels, mm -hmm. I had not owned a bar. And, um, you know, while I consumed enough my entire You've adult life. You've been in bars, yes. but you haven't owned a bar. <laughs> I operated one. You've um, paid for the bar to exist, yes, but you haven't Yes, yes. I've done a lot of bottle service. Uh, I know what that... that requires yeah. um but i hadn't owned one and i didn't know a lot about the licensing and the operations so i needed to have someone show me and so i had the benefit of that i had a couple of weeks where the prior owner uh, showed me a few things mm -hmm. and um i picked it up really fast nice. and i transitioned everything in terms of all the accounts and got to know all the suppliers and the staff and how to operate the place mm -hmm. and then we were shut down again right so I had six weeks of proper takeover and training and but figured it was it yours all out. at that point when you got mine. locked down again. Yes. Okay. Then I had to figure out what to do. Yeah. And I was in tears because again, I had to lay everyone off at another business. Right. And again, it took a toll on me. And I just told all these people, uh, you know, I'm new and so excited and I can't wait to take this place to new heights. And right. here I am right. like crushing them. I know it, man. I, Again. Start, I started two ventures in that in-between period uh, and had to close them as well. Yeah. It was pretty it was pretty painful. Yeah. I mean, again, they seem to understand that it wasn't my fault. But as an entrepreneur, it weighs on you. It's on your shoulders in a way that you can never fully express to someone who's not in that position. And leave aside like shedding the relationships and the staff. It's this kind of shedding the question or questioning shedding the potentiality of the venture, right? It's like... When will I ever be able to run this thing? Well, and, and that I was the never ending lockdown yeah. that second time. Yeah. So here we are, you know, with this years, never ending. Oh, you're okay. I thought you were talking about right now. Yes. No, no. So there no. you are. Stuck this is in the, the never second... ending pandemic, but um, no. So the second lockdown was very long. So yeah. we shut down, I believe it was December. Yeah. And then we're just like closed, closed, closed. And um, during that time period, I traveled and did all these things that i i was like you know what i'm just gonna go for it good yeah because i saw what operating a club was like and it's a lot yeah and between the law firm and the nightclub and the three kids and i own other real estate it was just there's just a lot so i'm like i'm just gonna really enjoy this time mm -hmm. because once this lockdown is over i'm gonna be grounded in toronto except it was like not ending yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and uh, then i'm like then i became angry yeah because i had bills mounting now too the bills I talked about earlier that mm -hmm. aren't covered by the government. Right. You know, I have... Cost of operations. Yeah, things that needed to get paid. And I have my own expenses too. I mean, the kids aren't free. Right, no, absolutely. <laughs> they have their needs. Um, so I was getting frustrated and angry and I couldn't do anything. But anyway, um, I was like, okay, I got to occupy my mind again. So I picked up another bar. Okay. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> so during you're like I'm already in it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I know, and I know how to do it now. Yeah. So I picked up another closed bar, and then I picked up a closed nightclub. When you say nightclub now, we're talking like if we talk about square footage. So your first bar is how big? Uh, it's just over five thousand square feet. Second bar. Uh, forty-five hundred square feet. Okay, so the same kind of model. Actually, then... very different, but the size is the same. Okay. And the next one was another like forty-five, five thousand. They're all around the same size. Okay, so it's not about so the night when you say nightclub, like what's the <laughs> okay? So these are bars. People go to drink and they. So mingle. I Pravda vodka bar. Yeah. Then I buy bar two four four in Entertainment District. So Pravda okay. is St. Lawrence Market area. Yeah, yeah, know that one. It's an older, mature crowd. Okay. People in their. 30s, 40s, 50s are out for a good time. It's yeah. unlike any other place in the city. Yeah. We have live entertainment. Um, it was Soviet themed. I had to strip that because of so the, the war, war yeah. which was another hurdle. Right. Um, bar 244 is an entertainment district and it's what I call a college bar. Okay. And it was known for their $3 drinks, which was very difficult to get rid of. <laughs> right, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, but it had been closed for two years, so in that way it was easy. But I still have people saying, well, it says online that you have $3 drinks. I'm like, yeah, there's something called inflation, and uh, that was a really long time ago. And in fact, the prior owner had wanted to get rid of it, but then he was saved by not having to get rid of it because of the pandemic. Okay. So it, it wasn't a feasible model anymore. Yeah. Um, downtown rent, can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, so there was bar 244. Then there was... A nightclub I bought called Cake Nightclub, but I, it had been closed for two years, and I bought it and rebranded it as Angel's Den. Okay. And I created a space, a nightclub that women would like going oh, to. Oh, cool! I like so that. everything was pink. You walked in, and there was this scent in the air. Yeah. Um, and everything had the angel wings. I'm lighting up as I talk about it because I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. so proud of these projects right. that I've had. Right. And it took forever to reopen because what I didn't realize is that. There was a new bylaw created by the city of Toronto in 2020, hmm. and it was um, a new noise bylaw. And so you had to have a sound engineer prepare a report to comply with the noise bylaw. Oh Except God. I'm like, how many nightclubs have opened since 2020? Yeah. To when I bought it? None, none, because we were in a pandemic. So I kept asking them, what do we need? Like, I'm asking the city of Toronto Municipal Licensing Office, what do we need? Yeah. Except they have no one answering the phones because they have no staff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when I finally made all these threats and got to department heads and whatever, because I'm like, I have a closed business that I cannot open now that I can legally open because the restrictions have eased. Yeah. I can't open it because you won't give me a license and you won't tell me what I need to comply with this noise bylaw. You don't know if an going to come to like no, check because do, no. do those staff exist? No. No, they didn't. Yeah. So they said, we are training for our 99 types of licenses, and so we don't have anyone. I go, that is not my problem. Right, right. Would you like to pay my rent and insurance? Because there's no more subsidies for that either. So did you have to soundproof the So the they find, I finally got a sound engineer in, and I, well, I didn't even know what I needed. They weren't telling me. I had to like figure this out on my own. Mm. And so I've got a sound engineer, and he came and did a report, and it, everything was done in compliance. And quite frankly, I pretty sure that some things were overlooked because I got the mayor involved because it would nothing was moving mm. and I I was actually having like a little bit of anxiety mode happening because well, that's because you're stuck in like the like you're stuck in the in limbo on this it's, it's kind of very frustrating well like, thousands a month are going in rent and yeah. insurance and by the way getting insurance for a bar and nightclub in Toronto is almost impossible now I would think so I because mean, you, did you know you can't even get like there's only one company in Canada that insures Vespas no 
I didn't. But we're talking about very limited selection also on nightclubs because right. I thought I told my broker, I'm like, hey, but there was no claims. I know that. I'm a personal injury lawyer. There was no claims. The insurer should be so happy. Like no one got injured. So yeah. they shouldn't be pay- paying out claims. He goes, Jasmine, you're failing to recognize that all the businesses closed and nobody paid their their uh, premium. So there's claims that have to be paid from the past. Mm. However, they don't have any money that came in because no one paid their premium because everyone shut their doors. So they just decided to get out of the space altogether. Oh, I went through this with, can you imagine, with office space. I went through this. So my, the broker that I had a couple of years ago that for like five years was, you know, was, was doing our stuff. Um, They basically said, yeah, so Lloyd's of London, is it Lloyd's of London? who is like the actual so lloyds of london they're in london they're an insurer yeah and uh they are they take forever by the way to pay out claims just as a side note i always have this joke with insurance defense lawyers saying is the check on a canoe with one man rowing yeah because it would take months whereas you know there's something called a wire transfer yeah it's so easy yeah they do it on purpose but you know (laughs) i was told through our broker of many years that like Lloyd's is no longer insuring offices as a segment because of the high risk to do with gatherings. And so it was it was like 2020. Gatherings? Like what gatherings? Like people coming together inside of real estate. So this was 2020 going into 2021. And they had their whatever internal miscommunications. Mm-hmm. But basically they said, we've talked to all the different suppliers of policies and no one will insure uh, I think it was Beasley that was like the in-between. But anyway, they, they were like, we can't get insurance for uh, your segment, which is at the time co-working. And I was like, so no co-working operators in Canada are insurable. Yes, according to all of our... Yeah, but that's the same thing. So Lloyd's pulled out, but I have a funny story. So Lloyd's also pulled out, my understanding is they've pulled out of doing these uh, nightclubs and bars, which they used to mm-hmm. in at least in Toronto. And I know that they were insuring these places because one of my areas of specialty within personal injury was commercial host liability and bouncer assault claims. Oh, interesting. And and so my broker's like, basically you single-handedly push them out. <laughs> so now I can't even, I can't you even get them. You cannibalized your own I can't, business. I can't get them for my own business because I made them pay all the claims. That's I'm hilarious. like, um... Okay, great. I didn't know I had, I had... Who knew I had so much power? Oh, my goodness. I know. And then... Uh, but then you managed... Like, I don't know how... Even us, we managed to, through NFP or another brokerage, get... I think it was backed by the same company. Or maybe we're not on Barclays now or something. Well, but. I have insurance, but it's... It was... Man. Between the insurance and the downtown rent, Yeah, it's really stressful like we yeah. have not also bounced back in the downtown core no, no people pedestrian have not, traffic's down yeah it's even down. if we have density there's no one here on monday and friday right and even if people live here this is what got me very interesting because we're in a very dense neighborhood in terms of you know uh proximity to condo buildings mm-hmm. and so on but um we saw no bump at all through the pandemic post-pandemic if we're even in post-pandemic uh, in in demand for co-working, one of our like now our lower tier segments, yeah. um, coming from our our neighbors, mm-hmm. we're a destination. Like people come from all over town to be here for meetings, particularly meetings mm-hmm. and corporate events. Mm-hmm. Um, and coworkers, very few. We have a limited co-working like kind of quotient of our business and yeah. space allotted to it. Um, but I was really surprised. Like people don't even if they live in condos, don't necessarily want to like walk the street. No, they or, don't. They don't. Yeah. It's like a it's like a ghost town. And so that affects my businesses, right? Because they're not, you know, Thursday after work drinks, 
Friday after work drinks. That's not happening. And because like there's Tuesday there's, and Wednesday now for commuters, right? Yeah. They two days and they don't want to, on Tuesday and Wednesday, they're not going out for drinks. They're just going to get home to their kids as they should. Right. Um, so it, it's very sad because businesses downtown have not bounced back because the downtown core hasn't bounced back. And that impacts our city at large. Agreed. Agreed. It's difficult. Like we facilitate a lot of these kind of like offsites, right? So what we will have up to 20 teams in different spaces on campus mm-hmm. um, between our three buildings uh, flying in and you, you'll see suitcases all over the place. People will be flying in from New York and from San Fran and from all over Canada for meetings, team meetings coming together. And then we've had to take on a whole new kind of consulting layer of the business to almost like help them program what their the rest of their agenda in the yeah. city is. Yeah. Because uh, it's so difficult for them to like navigate it these days well, to figure out. It's like, interesting because things aren't open. Yeah, like the restaurants aren't open. There's restaurants that are not open on Mondays and Tuesdays, because one, there's not enough people to fill them. But two, we have a staffing issue. Yeah, you've got a shortage of labor. I yeah. can't get people to come. So a lot of my bartenders, I've a good crew finally. Nice. Um, but oh, I have had to bartend. Many nights, and I've become very good. I'll Excellent. have you know, I'll shake up a nice uh, cocktail next yeah, time you're, you're at you one on of that. my bars. But, um, you know, I learned out of necessity, and I, I wasn't just going to stand there and watch people not get served because I didn't have enough bartenders. So right. I would hop on the bar, and I'm like, well, I can't beat the dumb girl. Uh, yeah, I've always figure it out yeah, and have fun with I've it. I've always had that mentality. I can't be the dumb girl in the room. And so I couldn't be the dumb girl at the bar. Like I had to figure it out. And yeah. I'm glad I did so I can hop on and off. The issue is when I get stuck on the bar, I can't put out the fires at all my bars. Well, yeah, it's this classic operator dilemma, right? Yeah. You don't want to be operating. You can't ideally you can't be stuck there. Yeah. So I um I don't mind helping when there's overflow, but I cannot be the dedicated bartender right. because there could be issues. And when I say issues, these are significant issues that happen at nightlife. Like a bylaw compliance officer, AGCO, so liquor compliance officer, the police just in general stop by, like mm-hmm. things happen, a fight breaks out, uh, broken toilets, broken dishwasher, broken this, broken, everything's broken. Yeah, suddenly the there's no forks. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so People love the forks. Yes. Not so, the spoon so much, no, but the forks, the forks always disappear. So, yeah. <laughs> That just, that's funny you say that. They actually disappear at my office. <laughs> Everywhere. Most. Forks. Where, where, who's stealing forks? People love forks. It's it's crazy the amount that we spend on forks. And I I have hot meals for lunch. I bring my wonderful home-cooked meal from dinner the, ne- the le- night before, and I'm yeah. like going to get a fork, and there's no fork. Yeah. I'm like, great, I have to eat like my spaghetti with a spoon today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like all the lunch that I plan now that I bring home from home is all spoon food because I know I can get a spoon. Oh, well, at least we're on the same. <laughs> we have the same issue here. Um, so getting back to staff shortages. Yeah. So we had significant issues and uh, we've got a good crew now, but my staff, most of them have a day job. Mm. And so, you know, when I have events, um, private bookings on a Tuesday or Wednesday, corporate groups, I'm excited, but then I have to find out who can come Yeah. No, because they have thing. day jobs. And all the staffing agencies either closed through the pandemic or are terribly unreliable. But they're also, well, you forgot one other issue. They're mm. very expensive. Yeah. And yeah, so- Yeah, labor rates have gone up. When I when I do the math, I'm like, okay, I like to keep my venues at a low price mm-hmm. um, because I remember what it was like when I am when I have my little law firm and I want to take people out, but I, I don't, 
I don't want to spend thousands because right. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I want to take them out to a nice place. Right. And so I want to be that destination at my bars where it's affordable mm-hmm. for good people that want to use the venue. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at it not from a short-sighted lens. These people are going to come back. Right. And as long as they're happy, I'm happy, they're coming back, it's all good. But it has to make sense now because if my labor cost is high Mm -hmm. and, you know, my inventory is now high, um, well, there has to be some profitability there. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. Right. No, I mean, it's getting tough, like, for so many reasons. And and some of the macro pictures that you painted, of course, play into it, like the, the interest rates, cost of borrowing... Uh, you know, this like staff churn shortage question, it's very difficult to operate uh, and operate profitably. And, you know, of course, the street's expectation, like people, the, the end user's expectation of hospitality services is always that uh, if it exists, it's kind of, um, it's institutional. Mm-hmm. That's the way I, I look at it, you know, maybe because we don't have a generally a very entrepreneurial society in mm-hmm. Canada. Um you know, your end user is is kind of coming in and assuming that you uh, everything's cool, like you're doing what you're doing. You, you know, yeah, you're selling your service because it's like it's what you do, and you're probably making. And this goes back to the teenage uh, son thing. Making so much. Everyone thinks that wherever I think it, you know what I think it is is it's to do with the aesthetics of transaction. So as people become, as their realities become more digital, mm-hmm. uh, they're set apart from true transactions mm-hmm. if you see numbers moving in and out of your bank account if you're trading crypto if the fluidity of numbers is something that you're familiar with as transactions mm-hmm. and then you go somewhere and you actually pay for something and receive a service back immediately the realities become merged in people's heads so i think that, that kind of like they don't calculate the value of transactions you know something i grew up w- with my dad uh doing is any business that i go to uh i can break down their their business model yeah. and like calculate approximately how well, much people, are they making people yeah. don't know that the toilet replacement that's happening like every right. week because some drunk person smashes it yeah it used to cost me five six hundred bucks to replace and now they're costing me a thousand and you've got wait times on like getting the plumber in to come and, yeah like, he's like gas yeah. is up they, and i had to come yeah. from vaughn yeah. Yeah. yeah so everything has gone up everything is costing more and I'm not increasing my prices at that rate. Otherwise, people will just not come. Right. And the other issue I'm having is that a lot of guests right now, they, you know, they expect the best of everything. And I want to give them the best of everything. But it may be that that day I had a bartender just not show up for work. Totally. They don't call. They just don't show up. Yeah. And or that day the coach check girl called in sick. So we have no code check that night. Like little things happen mm-hmm. and people get very upset and they're very quick to just go put a bad Google review. That's the worst thing. It, yeah. It's so, and I'm, I'm so, it hurts me. And you know, people in my, um, in my workplace keep telling me, Jasmine, you know, they were just angry people or, you know, how hard you work. Don't sweat the small stuff. But I can't because my heart is in this business. And I'm mm-hmm. like, they don't know that the bartender didn't show up. And that's why we're short staffed. They don't know that my co-check girl was sick. And that's why I don't have co-check. Like, yeah. it's just it's... there's so much stuff that happens behind the scenes. And people are very unforgiving in this city. Like if they have one bad experience, one little thing, the night might have been fantastic. Again, again I think a lot of it is because of Instagram, you know, in terms of people living behind screens looking at kind of fake perfection you're right and there's this anticipation also with the low utilization like people not necessarily going out every day 
every experience that they have, every service experience, whether it's a hotel, a restaurant, a bar, a nightclub, even with us, meeting space, mm-hmm. um, the expectation for that experience is is like a once a week. So yeah. they're like, this has to make my week. This has to be amazing. Yeah. This has to be amazing. And uh, of course, it's not transactional in the sense of like they're a patron, they're a customer, and so they they understand that they are kind of part of the service provision. Yeah, it's it's this very kind of like uh, Amazon uh, Prime expectation. Yeah, instant satisfi- satisfaction. Yeah, instant gratification. But uh, so it makes it difficult. But at the same time, uh, well. Yeah, that's a separate discussion. How to manage your Google reviews? You know. Oh gosh. <laughs> drown, drown the bad ones and good ones, and like you know the responsibility. People, you know, it's hard. People, there's a lot of people that love my venues, but they're not all gonna post because they're just so happy. Yeah. They're happy to be there, and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what it's about. It's all the people that weren't happy that feel like they need to make it Honestly, known. <laughs> but crazy. yes, we could talk for hours about Google reviews. Yeah, Google reviews and the onus on business to do digital marketing and engage in digital marketing and like that's a whole business digital marketing so i did a course at mit on digital marketing in recent years okay and the reason i did it was because i just felt this was pre-pandemic and i felt that people with my law firm were trying to sell me things and talking to me in a language that i knew a little bit of yeah but not enough of yeah and they were trying to sell me things that i was pretty sure i didn't need but wanted to make sure that i didn't need it and have the language to use to explain why i didn't need it instead of again being the dumb girl in the room as i said before uh so i did this course and i learned so much and i'm so happy that i took it because the world has moved at a rapid pace Mm -hmm. and I needed to have the skill set because digital marketing is a necessity in any business today. Yeah, you can't put a sandwich board on the street. No, you it's know? not going to reach and your. You can't buy a radio ad or market. a TV ad. Yeah, it's all digital, and it's a tricky, tricky thing because it's 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 constantly fluid. It's always changing. It is. Not it's do not another just... course sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like the courses themselves are. You know, the people writing the courses need to take courses, and it's just becoming a, a nightmare. Um. Yeah, so I think that's another discussion. And I think that's a roundtable discussion we'll have to have. You know, a few small business people talking about kind of like uh, what they have to do and what they have to know mm-hmm. in order to be relevant. Um, and, and a side note to that is you can't rely on agencies if you're a small business. It's like really difficult to rely on a digital marketing agency. Well, that's you know, like one problem I'm affordable. having with, you hit it right on, on the head. Yeah. Um, one issue I'm having is that because of my online presentation, um, because people know that I have multiple businesses, because of everything I've created, um, there's the assumption that I can afford it. And I, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but the point is that just because I can or cannot afford something, that's not what I'm looking at. Mm. I look at, does it make sense for that business that I want to market? So if we're talking about Pravda, for example, Pravda Mm. Vodka Bar, what is the spend for that? What makes sense for that particular business? Not what is Jasmine's affordability. I I need to, and, and the other thing is I, one of the questions that I hate that people ask me, I understand why they ask me, it's a normal question, but whether it's a contractor or someone providing me with the service, they wanna know what my budget is. And I never tell them my budget because I don't have one. Mm. I know what makes sense for what I've asked for. 
if I tell you that my budget is twenty thousand, you you're gonna spend my twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend my twenty thousand if it can be done in two thousand. Yes, your budget is two thousand. My budget. <laughs> you just need to calculate. Calculate your answer to them as That's close all. to zero as possible. <laughs> that is my budget. Uh, my other the other question people love asking me is, well, when what's your timeline? When do you, when are you looking to start? And my my favorite response. How's tomorrow for you? Yeah. <laughs> and they look at me and I'm like, oh, is that too soon? What about the day after? You know, I when I have an idea in mind, yeah. it's not for next year. Yeah. It's not for it's next like, let's month. Do this. Let's yeah, do this. I want to do it right now. Right. Tell me when you can do it. Right. So I, I have a new lounge coming, by oh, the way. Okay. So this will be the fourth hospitality yes. venture. Yes. Actually, there's also a fifth, but we'll talk about fourth. Okay. Uh, so with fourth, it's in Yorkville. And um, I had someone come in the space um, an interior designer, and she asked me the same thing, like, what's your timeline? And I said the same thing. How about tomorrow? Oh, how about the next day or next week? What's mm-hmm. good for you? Mm-hmm. And she said it was going to take six months. And I'm like, um, I'm sorry, are you going to pay for this? Why didn't you tell me this before we even met? Yeah. Why would I wait six months for sofas and, I don't know, other decor? Yeah, yeah. don't I go, order stuff you can't I'll just go to that. Wayfair. That's yeah. fine. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I was really irritated with that. But it did teach me a lesson to ask in advance of the meeting, yeah. can you have... Um, can you have this done by a certain time? Or what's your timeline? Like, what's your schedule like? Absolutely. Which I just assumed incorrectly that they would just have time. It's difficult to uh, anticipate, yeah, vendor, partner, anyone like in business. I feel like even more so these days, you know, like post-pandemic, supply chain issues, whatever it is. uh, It's really difficult to assume uh, simpatico and 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 to assume kind of like let's just call it motivation well you're right and she said to me she brought that up she said look we may want something and there's a lot of supply chain issues i go then get something else yeah find the vendor that doesn't have those issues it's a it's a little table like no totally just get something else so we were not on the same wavelength needless to say so going going to someone else but a fourth place is opening up soon so that's the Yorkville one. Yeah. And then I have um, another project um, happening outside of Canada. Cool. Um, it's more of, um, it's hospitality. Okay. So I've bought, I'm not telling you where yet because we haven't released this yet. And Ooh, I don't know exciting. when your podcast is coming out, but yeah. um, it's six acres of land, waterfront property on an island that's well known. And it has a villa right now. And we're looking to expand on the property and develop the property into either more villas or a small boutique hotel. Um, We need to go down there and figure out what's gonna make more sense. Um, I do have a partner. This is the first time I'm doing a business venture with a partner, which is a big deal for me because I have trust issues. (laughs) And I also am the type of person that likes to do everything my way immediately now, yesterday, you know. Um, So this is new, uh, new ground for me. And um, hopefully it it works well. So how are you, we can obviously do 10 episodes of our podcast <laughs> and we'll have you on again. What uh, what are you primarily spending your time on then if you were to divvy it up? Like, are you have you moved away from law? Are you done with it? I still have a law firm. Yeah. I haven't been taking on new clients for about six to eight months now. Okay. Um, my, my realization, let's mm. put it, is that I can no longer balance um, the firm with all these entrepreneurial pursuits. Mm-hmm. 
And I loved practicing law. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I attribute a lot of my success to being a practicing lawyer and meeting the connections and learning the law and understanding everything that is necessary to operate my businesses. Like I negotiate my own lease agreements. Okay. I have redone lease agreements. I was sitting on a beach recently um, in Hilton Head Okay. and redoing a lease agreement that a lawyer for the other side had drafted. And I'm like, you know, by the time I get my lawyer to do this and pay my lawyer, why don't yeah, I just yeah. do it myself? It's totally. just easier. Um, so I do a lot of it myself. And even the liquor licensing stuff that normally you'd pay a lawyer to take care of, I do, do it myself. Business licensing, I do it myself. So it's it's definitely, I'm using my legal skills for my own businesses yeah, at this point. Yeah, it's a great edge. Um, great but advantage. the pandemic definitely took away a lot of the fun aspects of the law and just kind of left me with the law. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not in personal injury going around to different courts anymore. I don't meet my clients in person anymore. All our proceedings that were done at court or in court reporters offices are now down on Zoom. I'm yeah. trapped at my desk <laughs> with sore hips, sore back, uh, you know, shifting around. Like I, I just, it is not for me right, right, anymore. Right. Um, it's also become more expensive in terms of the disbursements and the outlay mm -hmm. and the the overhead is just, it's too high. The business model doesn't make enough sense to me anymore. It's a very crowded market. The last few years, as I mentioned, all jokes aside, you've had less people injured. You have the same number of lawyers all mm -hmm. fighting for the same clients. Oh, yeah. um, so you're just just all around for me. I'm the type of person that if, if I don't love what I'm doing, it's time to move on. Yeah. And I loved it and I don't want to be that cranky lawyer that just doesn't love it anymore, right. but still doing it. Right. Um, so I am making my exit. And I just announced that publicly a few days ago. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. It was bittersweet because it's been uh, 17 years since I became a lawyer and 21 years since I started law school. Wow. And it's been an amazing journey, met so many incredible people, but uh, when it's time, it's time. And so hospitality is your focus. Um, hospitality is a focus. Okay. Um, real estate investments is another. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I've got Law Girls Bump in the Road, and one day I'd still like it to be a movie. Um, I've got my cookbooks, three more coming. So there's lots of different projects. Lots of projects. Like, I'm really excited every day. There's not enough hours in the day. I fight sleep, as my office manager tells me. <laughs> I, I, my eyes are closing and I'm trying so hard to stay awake and, yeah. and you know, I can hear her in my head. She's my last thought these days <laughs> before I go to sleep is my office manager saying, stop fighting sleep. You need to sleep. Yeah. But I'm enjoying everything I work on. And that's everyone's dream is to have a life filled with excitement, adventure and uh, facing challenges with, uh, you know, with enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's no, great. it's never a dull moment. Loving every moment. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me.